0: which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash boreyoutosleep that's try better H-E-L-P and join over 500,000 people Taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy You To Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Fourth Dimension by C. Howard Hinton, published in 1906. This book takes a scientific look at the fourth dimension and its properties. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Firstly, I'd like to send a huge thank you to new Patreon, Diane. Thank you for supporting the podcast with a monthly financial contribution. It is the greatest compliment and helps me bring out more episodes for you and all other listeners who need a good night's rest. Thank you also to Oliver Johnson and also to Cher for your lovely messages through the website during the week. I'm glad the podcast is helping each of you get the rest that you need. Thank you also to Eric for your message through the website. Hopefully the insomnia stays away, as I'll be bringing out more episodes for you and other listeners. For all the other listeners out there who find the podcast beneficial, I have a favour to ask you. Please leave a review and comment in iTunes or leave the show a rating in Spotify. If you would like, you can also say hello at Boy to Sleep, where you can become a Patreon and support the podcast. I am also on Twitter and Instagram at BoyToSleep. You can find me on Facebook by searching Boy to Sleep Podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Fourth Dimension by C. Howard Hinton Preface I have endeavoured to present the subject of the higher dimensionality of space in a clear manner, devoid of mathematical subtleties and technicalities in order to engage the interest of the reader. I have, in the earlier chapters, dwelt on the perspective the hypothesis of a fourth dimension opens, and have treated of the many connections there are between this hypothesis and the ordinary topics of our thoughts. A lack of mathematical knowledge will prove of no disadvantage to the reader for I have used no mathematical processes of reasoning. I have taken the view that the space which we ordinarily think of, the space of real things, is different from the space treated of by mathematics. Mathematics will tell us a great deal about space, just as the atomic theory will tell us a great deal about the chemical combinations of bodies. But after all, a theory is not precisely equivalent to the subject with regard to which it is held. There is an opening, therefore, from the side of our ordinary space perceptions for a simple, altogether rational, mechanical, and observational way of treating this subject of higher space. And of this opportunity, I have availed myself. The details introduced in the earlier chapters, especially in chapters 4, 5 and 6, may perhaps be found wearisome. They are of no essential importance in the main line of argument, and if left till chapters 8 and 9 have been read will be found to afford interesting and obvious illustrations of the properties discussed in the later chapters. My thanks are due to the friends who have assisted me in designing and preparing the modifications of my previous models, and in no small degree to the publisher of this volume, Mr. Sonnachine, to whose unique appreciation of the line of thought of this, as of my other essays, their publication is owing. By the provision of a coloured plate, in addition to the other illustrations, he has added greatly to the convenience of the reader. Chapter 1. Four-Dimensional Space There is nothing more indefinite and at the same time more real than that which we indicate when we speak of the higher. In our social life we see it evidenced in a greater complexity of relations. But this complexity is not all. There is, at the same time, a contact with an apprehension of something more fundamental, more real. With the greater development of man, there comes a consciousness of something more than all the forms in which it shows itself. There is a readiness to give up all the visible and tangible for the sake of those principles and values of which the visible and tangible are the representation. The physical life of civilized man and of a mere savage are practically the same, but the civilized man has discovered a depth in his existence which makes him feel that that which appears all to the savage is a mere externality and appeternage to his true being. Now this higher, how shall we apprehend it? It is generally embraced by our religious faculties, by our idealizing tendency. But the higher existence has two sides. It has a being as well as qualities. And in trying to realize it through our emotions, we are always taking the subjective view. Our attention is always fixed on what we feel, what we think. Is there any way of apprehending the higher after the purely objective method of a natural science? I think that there is. Plato, in a wonderful allegory, speaks of some men living in such a condition that they were practically reduced to be the denizens of a shadow world. They were chained and perceived, but the shadows of themselves and all real objects projected on a wall, towards which their faces were turned. All movement to them were but movements on the surface. All shapes but the shapes of outlines with no substantiality, Plato uses this illustration to portray the relation between true being and the illusions of the sense world. He says that just as a man liberated from his chains could learn and discover that the world was solid and real and could go back and tell his bound companions of this greater, higher reality, so the philosopher who has been liberated who has gone into the thought of the ideal world, into the world of ideas greater and more real than the things of sense, can come and tell his fellow men of that, which is more true than the visible sun, more noble than Athens, the visible state. Now, I take Plato's suggestion, but literally, not metaphorically, He imagines a world which is lower than this world, in that shadow figures and shadow motions are its constituents, and to it he contrasts the real world. As the real world is to this shadow world, so is the higher world to our world. I accept his analogy. As our world in three dimensions is to a shadow or plane world, so is the higher world to our three-dimensional world. That is, the higher world is four-dimensional. The higher being is, so far its existence is concerned apart from its qualities, to be sought through the conception of an actual existence, spatially higher, than that which we realize with our senses. Here you will observe I necessarily leave out all that gives its charm and interest to Plato's writings, all those conceptions of the beautiful and good which live immortally in his pages. All that I keep from his great storehouse of wealth is this one thing simply A world spatially higher than this world's, a world which can only be approached through the stocks and stones of it, a world which must be apprehended laboriously, patiently, through the material things of it, the shapes, the movements, the figures of it. We must learn to realize the shapes of objects in this world of the higher man. We must become familiar with the movements that objects make in his world, so that we can learn something about his daily experience, his thoughts of material objects, his machinery. The means for the prosecution of this inquiry are given in the conception of space itself. It often happens that that which we consider to be unique and unrelated gives us within itself those relations by means of which we are able to see it as related to others, determining and determined by them. Thus on the earth is given the phenomenon of weight by means of which Newton brought the earth into its true relation to the sun and other planets. Our terrestrial globe was determined in regard to other bodies of the solar system by means of a relation which subsisted on the earth itself. And so space itself bears within it relations of which we can determine it as related to other space for within space are given the conceptions of point and line, line and plane, which really involve the relation of space to a higher space, where one segment of a straight line leaves off and another begins is a point, and the straight line itself can be generated by the motion of the point. One portion of a plane is bounded from another by a straight line, and the plane itself can be generated by the straight line, moving in a direction not contained in itself. Again, two portions of solid space are limited with regard to each other by a plane, and the plane, moving in a direction not contained in itself, can generate solid space. Thus, going on, we may say that space is that which limits two portions of higher space from each other, and that our space will generate the higher space by moving in a direction not contained in itself. Another indication of the nature of four-dimensional space can be gained by considering the problem ...of the arrangement of objects. If I have a number of swords of varying degrees of brightness... ...I can represent them in respect of this quality... ...by points arranged along a straight line. At the risk of some prolixity... ...I will go fully into the experience of a hypothetical creature... ...confined to motion on a plane surface... By so doing I shall obtain an analogy which will serve in our subsequent inquiries because the change in our conception which we make in passing from the shapes and motions in two dimensions to those in three affords a pattern by which we can pass on still further to the conception of an existence in four-dimensional space. A piece of paper on a smooth table affords a ready image of a two-dimensional existence. If we suppose the being represented by the piece of paper to have no knowledge of the thickness by which he projects above the surface of the table, it is obvious that he can have no knowledge of objects of a similar description except by the contact with their edges. His body and the objects in his world have a thickness of which, however, he has no consciousness. Since the direction stretching up from the table is unknown to him, he will think of the objects of his world as extending in two dimensions only figures are to him completely bounded by their lines, just as solid objects are to us by their surfaces. He cannot conceive of approaching the center of a circle except by breaking through the circumference, for the circumference encloses the center in the directions in which motion is possible to him. The plane surface over which he slips and with which he is always in contact, will be unknown to him. There are no differences by which he can recognize its existence. But for the purposes of our analogy, this representation is deficient. A being as thus described has nothing about him to push off from. The surface over which he slips affords no means by which he can move in one direction rather than another. Placed on a surface over which he slips freely, he is in a condition analogous to that in which we should be if we were suspended free in space. There is nothing which he can push off from in any direction known to him. Let us there modify our representation. Let us suppose a vertical plane against which particles of thin matter slip, never leaving the surface. Let these particles possess an attractive force and cohere together into a disk. This disk will represent the globe of a plane being. He must be conceived as existing on the rim he will have no sense of right and left, that is, of the direction which we recognize as extending out from the plane to our right or left. The distinction of right and left is the one that we must suppose to be absent. In order to project ourselves into the condition of a plane being, let the reader imagine himself as he looks along the plane, to become more and more identified with the thin body on it, till he finally looks along parallel to the surface of the plain earth, and up and down, losing the sense of the direction, which stretches right and left. This direction will be an unknown dimension to him, Our space conceptions are so intimately connected with those which we derive from the existence of gravitation, that it is difficult to realize the condition of a plane being, without picturing him as in the material surroundings, with a definite direction of up and down. Hence the necessity of our somewhat elaborate scheme of representation, which when its import has been grasped, can be dispensed with for the simpler one of a thin object slipping over a smooth surface which lies in front of us. It is obvious that we must suppose some means by which the plane being is in contact with the surface on which he slips. The simplest supposition to make is that there is a traverse gravity which keeps him to the plane. This gravity must be thought of as different to the attraction exercised by his matter and as unperceived by him. At this stage of our inquiry, I do not wish to enter into the question of how a plane could be arriving at a knowledge of the third dimension, but simply to investigate his plane consciousness. It is obvious that the existence of a plane must be very limited. A straight line standing up from the surface of his earth affords a bar to his progress. An object like a wheel which rotates round an axis would be unknown to him, for there is no conceivable way in which he can get to the center without going through the circumference. He would have spinning disks, but could not get to the center of them. The plane being can represent the motion from any one point of his space to any other, by means of two straight lines drawn at right angles to each other. With the first step in the apprehension of a third dimension, There would come to a plain being the conviction that he had previously formed a wrong conception of the nature of his material objects. He had conceived them as geometrical figures of two dimensions only. If a third dimension exists, such figures are incapable of real existence." Thus he would admit that all his real objects had a certain, though very small, thickness in the unknown dimension, and that the conditions of his existence demanded the supposition of an extended sheet of matter from contact with which in their motion his objects never diverge. Analogous conceptions must be formed by us on the supposition of a four-dimensional existence. We must suppose a direction in which we can never point, extending from every point of our space. We must draw a distinction between a geometrical cube and a cube of real matter. The cube of real matter we must suppose to have an extension in an unknown direction, real but so small as to be imperceptible by us. From every point of a cube, interior as well as exterior, we must imagine that it is possible to draw a line in the unknown direction. The assemblage of these lines would constitute a higher solid, the lines going off in the unknown direction from the face of a cube would constitute a cube starting from that face. Of this cube, all that we should see in our space would be the face. Again, just as the plane being can represent any motion in his space by two axes, so we can represent any motion in our three-dimensional space By means of three axes, there is no point in our space to which we cannot move by some combination of movements on the directions marked out by these axes. On the assumption of a fourth dimension, we have to suppose a fourth axis, which we will call a W. It must be supposed that to be right angles to each and every one of three axes, just as two axes, determine a plane which is similar to the original plane, on which we supposed the plane being to exist, but which runs off from it, and only meets it in a line. So in our space, if we take any three axes, such as AX a Y and a W. They determine a space like our space worlds. This space runs off from our space, and if we were transferred to it, we should find ourselves in a space exactly similar to our own. We must give up any attempt to picture this space in relation to ours, just as a plane being would have to give up any attempt to picture a plane at right angles to his plane. The plane being can trace out a movement in the third dimension by assuming discontinuous leaps from one section to another. Thus, a motion along the edge of the cube from left to right would be represented in the set of sections in the plane as the succession of the corners of the sections A, B, C, and D. A point moving from A through B, C, D in our space must be represented in the plane as appearing in A, then in B and so on, without passing through the intervening plane space. If a higher cube passes transverse to our space it will appear as a cube isolated in space the part that has not come into our space and that the part has passed through will not be visible the gradual passing through our space would appear as the change of the matter of the cube before us one material particle in it is succeeded by another neither coming nor going in any direction, we can point to. In this manner, by the duration of the figure, we can exhibit the higher dimensionality of it, a cube of our matter, under the circumstances supposed, namely that it has a motion transverse to our space, would instantly disappear, a higher cube would last till it had passed transverse to our space, by its whole distance of extension in the fourth dimension. As the plane being can think of the cube as consisting of sections, each like a figure he knows, extending away from his plane, so we can think of a higher solid as composed of sections, each like a solid which we know, but extending away from our space. Having now obtained the conception of a four-dimensional space, and having formed the analogy which, without any further geometrical difficulties, enables us to inquire into its properties, I will refer the reader whose interest is principally in the mechanical aspect, to chapters 5 and 6 in the present chapter i will deal with the general significance of the inquiry and in the next with the historical origin of the idea first with regard to the question of whether there is any evidence that we are really in four-dimensional space i will go back to the analogy of the plane world A being in a plane world could not have any experience of three-dimensional shapes, but he could have an experience of three-dimensional movements. We have seen that his matter must be supposed to have an extension, though a very small one, in the third dimension, and thus in the small particles of his matter. Three-dimensional movements may well be conceived to take place. Of these movements, he would only perceive the resultants. Since all movements of an observable size in the plane world are two-dimensional, he would only perceive the resultants in two dimensions of the small three-dimensional movements. Thus, there would be a phenomena ...which he could not explain by his theory of mechanics. Motions would take place which he could not explain by his theory of motion. Hence, to determine if we are in a four-dimensional world... ...we must examine the phenomena of motion in our space. If movements occur which are not explicable on the suppositions of our three-dimensional mechanics we should have an indication of a possible four-dimensional motion. And if, moreover, it could be shown that such movements would be a consequence of a four-dimensional motion in the minute particles of bodies or of the ether, we should have a strong presumption in favor of the reality of the fourth dimension. By proceeding in the direction of finer and finer subdivision, we come to forms of matter possessing properties different to those of larger masses. It is probable that at some stage in the process, we should come to a form of matter of such minute subdivision that its particles possess a freedom of movement in four dimensions. This form of matter I speak of as a four-dimensional ether, and attribute to its properties approximating to those of a perfect liquid deferring the detailed discussion of this form of matter to chapter 5 we will now examine the means by which a plain being would come to the conclusion that three-dimensional movements existed in his world and point out the analogy by which we can conclude the existence of four-dimensional movements in our world. Since the dimensions of the matter in his world are small in the third direction, the phenomena in which we would detect the motion would be those of a small particles of matter. Suppose there is a ring in his plane, we can imagine currents flowing round the ring in either of two opposite directions. These would produce unlike effects and give rise to two different fields of influence. If the ring with a current in it in one direction be taken up and turned over and put down again on the plane, it would be identical with the ring having a current in the opposite direction. An operation of this kind would be impossible to the plane being. Hence, he would have in his space two irreconcilable objects, namely the two fields of influence, due to the two rings with currents in them in opposite directions. By irreconcilable objects in the plane, I mean objects which cannot be thought of as transformed one into the other day, ...by any movement in the plane. Instead of currents flowing in the rings... ...we can imagine a different kind of current. Imagine a number of small rings strung on the original ring. A current round these secondary rings... ...would give two varieties of effect... ...or two different fields of influence... ...according to its direction... These two varieties of current could be turned one into the other by taking one of the rings up, turning it over, and putting it down in its place. Now in our space, there are two fields of different properties which can be produced by an electric current flowing in a closed circuit or ring. These two fields can be changed one into the other by reversing the currents, but they cannot be changed one into the other by any turning about one of the rings in our space. For the disposition of the fields with regard to the ring itself is different when we turn the ring, over and when we reverse the direction of the current in the ring. As hypothesis to explain the differences of these two fields and their effects, we can suppose the following kind of motions. First, a current along the conductor. Second, a current round the conductor. That is, of rings of currents strung on the conductor as an axis. Neither of these suppositions account for facts of observation Hence, we have to make the supposition of a four-dimensional motion. We find that a four-dimensional rotation of the nature explained in a subsequent chapter has the following characteristics. First, it would give us two fields of influence, the one of which could be turned into the other by taking the circuit up into the fourth dimension turning it over, and putting it down in our space again. Precisely as the two kinds of fields in the plane could be turned one into the other by a reversal of the current in our space. Second, it involves a phenomenon precisely identical with that most remarkable and mysterious feature of an electric current, namely that it is a field of action the rim of which necessarily abuts on a continuous boundary formed by a conductor. Hence, on the assumption of a four-dimensional movement in a region of the minute particles of matter, we should expect to find a motion analogous to electricity. And that concludes tonight's reading. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story as you've slowly fallen asleep. If you're not quite tired yet, feel free to listen to another story. In the meantime, I'll be working to bring you a new episode very soon. Good night.